You know, in the past, Steve, we've recorded podcasts that we thought were epic and that ended up not getting recorded. Mm. And that almost just happened again. Yeah, that would be no good. Okay. Although I don't know that we got anything epic to bring today. Fair enough. But, yeah, I don't know. know. I don't know what we've got. You know, We've got something. Hi, I'm George Techmanchub here with Steve the... Uh, sorry, Big Cat. Anderson. I almost said uh, Steve the Steve. <laughs> could be. Could be your new... Uh, yeah, could be your new tagline, brother. Oh man, Steve blew Steve. that one. Steve the Steve Anderson is here for the <laughs> Eastern Target Archery Podcast, and uh, hey, we're trying out a new audio rig. So if we if we find ourselves um, sounding worse than usual, then you'll know why. But we've got some new gear that we're playing with, and uh, and I'm sure that these new Sure microphones will surely give us better overall quality down the road. They seem really dope. Yeah. Seem really nice. Yeah. Very exciting well. stuff. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, this is one of those podcasts. First off, I want to follow up after Vegas because, you know, we did a live podcast from Vegas and um, holy cow, was that an epic shoot down? Yeah, I mean, that, was, that shoot down 100%. If there was any question, it ended my archery career. Because you you can't pick yeah I'm like I'm not I'm not the guy who is gonna go forty five X's in a row to win Vegas in the shoot down that's not gonna happen for me so you know I always kind of said a Vegas style shoot down or like an NFA indoor I could still win one of those if sure. if I uh, got fortunate and came out and could knock it out and you know four or five ends I could do that but that's gonna require some luck. That's going to require everyone else faltering. And there's just too many guys who are too good that you're not going to get someone faltering that early in the shoot off. Last year went pretty long, like probably 10 ends or so. Year before that went pretty long. So you're not going to see shoot offs that end in 12 arrows anymore. It's no. just going to go and go and go. So my archery career is over. Well, all, all joking aside, when you consider the luck factor, that can work both ways. So, you you know, none of us know that we'll ever see another one quite like that. I mean, this could be one that stands out for the next 10 years for all we know. But I would be leaning a little bit more toward your point of view. I think this is going to become just like with Roger Bannister in the four minute, four minute mile. You're yeah. going to see more people go, oh, that's possible. I can do this too. Yeah. I mean, those guys shot more shoot off arrows than I shoot in total training in a day anymore. 36 arrows. That's what I'm good for. Those guys went 45 arrows plus three to warm up plus whatever that they shot beforehand to warm up plus their 30 arrow round and warm up for that on the day. So, you know, they blasted out a lot of arrows that day and still got to the end and had 45 straight X's in them. You know, I've seen performances like that in other places. We have seen, um, for example, the guy that ended up winning Matthias Fullerton. We've seen Matthias do the same thing in, in, uh, in Neem, not too long before yeah, that. I mean, he went, he shot a 600, then he shot what four matches or three matches clean. So I saw Abshek Virma, really good. I, I saw Abshek Virma shoot a ridiculous number of tens in a row outdoors in Bangkok at an Asian Cup. Um, but in neither of those cases, neither Neem nor my example with Abshek was $58,000 plus contingency. So call it $100,000 on the line. Yeah, probably thereabouts when you add it all up. Yeah. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty awesome shoot-off. Um, you know, those guys were very deserving to go that far and keep going and keep going and keep going. And, you know, like uh, Jacob Marlowe, I'm like, I don't know that I've seen him shoot a 30X in competition. Right. I mean, I know he's capable, sure. Yeah, he's but been in the shoot down before, but never made it that far, right? I don't know if he's even shot a 30X at Vegas, like just in a regular day. I don't think he has. So to do that many arrows in a row, X-ring, in the shoot off with all the pressure on you, you know, he found a, he found a groove there. Uh, Matias said something similar too. You know, he's like, I just got in a spot where I felt like I was in the zone kind of. You know, he said something the, like that. Did you get the impression looking at these two guys that um... – one of them was smoother than the other, generally speaking, though. I, I always got the sense that Mr. Marlowe's shots were just on the edge of, of going south, whereas Matias looked pretty consistent 
form wise, you know? Um, I mean, I didn't pay that close of attention, I guess. I, I, I probably did at the time, but I didn't, you know, commit that to memory. But I do remember Matias looked like his timing and rhythm was really good. He had one shot, I do recall, that he held a long time. And I thought, oh, no. And then he just buried it inside he had, out. You he had know? another one that went super early. Yeah, he had a few that went fast, but those usually are okay. Yeah. Uh, sometimes those will miss high when you shoot fast. But, you know, he, he was, I mean, he was not even close on anything really. So yeah, he was rock solid at the same time when you're watching two guys compete like that, it's just a matter of the one guy making that one mistake. Yeah. And you know, we saw it out of Jacob and he missed that about two mil high and that was it. You know, that was all it took. So that is all it was, was maybe two millimeters, just a bit of daylight there, but Mm -hmm. it was enough. And he knew it too. When he shot it, you could tell, I mean, yep. You know, the, at that level, you know, you know where it's going while it's still in the air. And what I'll say about that is he shot it. And then Matias, I think it was what, like his second arrow of the end. And then Matias still had to close out. Right. Yes. So he knew, all right, I'm, I still, I got to put these in to win Vegas. Yeah. That's very hard. I will say one of the big issues with the Vegas shoot right now, something that absolutely needs to be solved. If they want to go arrow for arrow, because they want to be able to show it on TV. They need to alternate the start. So when there's five guys left and you're going arrow for arrow and guy number one starts this end, and then there's still five guys after that guy. Number one needs to go last guy. Number two needs to start. So you need to alternate the start and move it down the line. Then when there's two guys left, you alternate every end who starts, who, who, you know, who leads, who finishes. So, yeah. um, yeah, Matias had to close each and every time he's always trying to match it. That's very hard to do. I think that's harder than than opening up. So props to him. But from a competition standpoint um, and trying to keep things fair competitively, I would alternate the shooting order. I agree with you. I, so, I had the same observation, in fact, during that match. Yeah. I've been saying it since they went to this, you know, everybody, or, or let's get them all lined up and shoot one for one, which – Okay, that's what it needs to be. Then that's what it's going to evolve to. Cool, but now we've got to evolve beyond that too. And you know, life's not fair. I get that, but when we all paid the same amount of money to compete, we should make it as fair as possible. Totally agree. All right. So shifting gears uh, on the Eastern Target Archery Facebook page earlier this week, we set up an opportunity for our listeners to drop a few questions our way, and we've got some good ones as usual. So. Uh, without any particular order, um, what do you say we go with Craig's question first? Yeah, Craig's question. When setting up a bow for outdoor, what is your process to determine your sight bar placement, the distance in front of the bow? Um, now, I've heard about theories about this from both Kevin Wilkie and from Jesse Broadwater. What is your thoughts on this? Well, he's talking about your extension, the sight extension, how yep. far out you're going to run it. And... There's a few different reasons why I might do one or the other in let's say in field archery, I will put it where I need it to gauge the target. Yep. So you use your scope, basically like a mill dot system on the target face. And there's an alignment procedure for that to determine the distance of the target. That's in world field where there's unknown distances. And let's go ahead and talk about that. Just a little bit more detail. You can take a 10 centimeter piece of black tape. And you can set it on a target and stand 10 meters back. And then you can move your aperture in and out so that you have some reference on there that coincides exactly with the width of that tape. And that becomes a visual rangefinder. Sure. I do it differently. Yes. I use the actual target. And I actually allow for some what I call white space on the edge. I want to be able to see a little bit of white. Gives you more precision, doesn't it? Yeah, that way I can... I can gauge the white because when I go um, in bright sunlight, I know my peep is going to be slightly smaller, so I want to have less white or none showing. But I still want to know where the white is so I have an actual edge of target defined. And then we've really gotten into the weeds on what this is, but you know what? I'm not stopping now. No, this is what yeah. they ask. Then when you go in the dark, your peep becomes larger. Uh, in theory, your scope would actually appear larger too. So you need to allow for more white space. So that's something I would always 
calculate when I was out shooting. I mean, I figure it was good for, you know, half of a, maybe half a scoring ring, if that. Yeah. But I knew I needed to calculate it. Dark target, I need to show a little bit more white in my scope when I'm gauging the target, when I'm ranging the target with my, my center dot, mill dotting the target. So, that little subtlety is a big difference, though, because if you read... I mean, you know, World Archery even created a guide as to how to do this years ago. Yeah. And nobody gets into that level of detail that you just brought up. Because what you just brought up is a subtle difference that makes all the difference. Yeah, everyone tries to hit edge of black from the target onto yep. the edge of their scope. And, and then you don't have a, yeah, you don't have a reference. reference. So anyhow, that was really getting into it for field archery. But for standard target archery, I typically just want a... Uh, sight distance that gives me good peep scope alignment with the scope peep size I'm using and works for a torque tune application. I've kind of come to know what that's going to be for me. So I typically get my sight radius to where my peep to pin measurements around 33 and a half, 34 inches thereabouts. And then uh, for field, it's usually around 32 and a half with the scope I use and the lens power. So I can kind of measure that out and know where I'm going to be. Um, before I even get started. So that's just stuff I've got in my brain. I never wrote those down or anything, but I remember them. So I know it's a lot different for recurve and there seems to be my, my understanding is in recurve, you, there's like a big desire to have the site extended out as far as possible. Is that correct? Well, for, for field archery, I would always set my site the way you just described. Which same, was, yeah. Same way. Yeah. You're using the tail theorem to get the ideal relationship for the target for field archery. Now the truth is uh, because I shot target and field interchangeably, I generally would leave it there. In theory, if you're focused on aiming, you're going to want that thing out there as far as you can get it. Just like with a, a long gun, you know, your sight radius gives you more precision. So that comes down to the theory. Okay. Do you want to have like Casey who we spoke to um, for a different podcast? Do you want to have what Casey does? And go for something that gives you a relaxed feeling at full draw so that you're kind of floating and you can, you know, look at the center of the target, let your aperture kind of go around it and line things up visually. Or are you Brady using a precision fiber optic and you're putting it exactly where you want to hit? Those two different philosophies will help dictate how much that matters. For okay. me personally, I never ran them out full length. I always ran them to my field archery length because I always ran an open ring and I looked at the target. So I remember, um, Oh, it was the archer from great Britain, Larry, Larry Godfrey, Larry Godfrey always ran like a 12 inch extension all the way out. He sure did. In fact, I believe that he had Shiboya make him a special one. They did. And now all the British kids try to copy that. Is there a reasoning or is it just, they think it's cool. I honestly think that it can lead to over aiming and over aiming is not a good thing. Right. That's my personal philosophy on that. Uh, by the way, you brought up torque tuning a moment ago, and that leads well into our next question from Joshua, who says that he's heard you talk about torque tuning a compound, and he wants to know, is it possible to torque tune a recurve, or does it really matter much in the long run? And if so, how would that work? Moving the plunger forward and aft of the bow, or adjusting the depth of the grip? And yeah, all those things could work. Um, back in the early 90s, there was a theory out there that the uh, ideal location for the plunger might not be in alignment with the pivot point of the grip, that it might be in alignment with the centroid of the mass of the riser. And that was why the original forward hole was plugged into uh, some of the GM risers. Uh, it was a shooter named Tom Stevenson who came up with that theory, and it was embraced by Rick McKinney. And um, it turned out not to necessarily be what the theory called for because you're introducing other variables. You're essentially looking at a longer arrow when you do that. There's a number of other things going on. Uh, the reason the second hole has always persisted since then is because it was a very handy way to bolt on a, an arrow rest, you know, a trailing arm arrow rest, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. But um, the theory originally behind that, that second plunger hole was to address exactly what Joshua is asking about. Uh, does it matter? Um, I would say that, and again, it's it's a cheap throwaway answer, but if 
if you'll forgive me, if it worked, the Koreans would be using it, <laughs> and they're not. I think there's also just significantly less torque in a recurve bow than there in a compound. There is actually less effective torque because we're holding full weight. Yeah. So the ratio of the of the actual torque from the grip yep. to the holding weight is much greater with the recurve than it is with the compound. You're also not offsetting cables that are under a 220 pound load. Exactly. So more in yeah, some, some designs, right? So there's yeah, there's less torque in the just the string shot system. Uh-huh. And then because of the holding weight, there's going to be less torque in the actual bow you know the bow to shooter relationship yeah so 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 my general answer is it probably doesn't matter um there there may be some individual stuff but there's only so much you can really do in the context now look there have been some bows 30 years ago that actually had a slot instead of a specific location for the plunger so you could move the thing fore and aft with very granular increments Mm. Uh, they didn't take off for a couple reasons, one of which was structurally it wasn't a great idea. And second of all, people couldn't figure out how to make it work to their advantage because you're actually playing with three or four variables when you move that thing. You're playing with variables such as your effective arrow length, the relationship of the front vibration node of the arrow to where the plunger is, and a bunch of other stuff that nobody should have to think about. And as a result, I think that, you know, while it sounded good on paper, and if you're a geek engineer, it might sound like a great idea. It wasn't necessarily something that proved to be superior in a meaningful way. So, interesting. You know, lots of ideas in our sport that come back. Yeah. I, I'll bet we see that again someday. I remember uh, there was an archer uh, probably like six, seven, eight years ago who put two rest on his bow oh yeah shot a really good score and then everyone wanted to try that and you know i thought i think maybe they thought oh that was the reason for the good score it's like no the guy probably is a good shooter but you know so everyone tried it for a minute and then went away from it yeah don't see that anymore these days i'm not even sure if that guy is doing it himself and i'm not even, I don't even know if the guy shoots bows anymore so there's plenty of stuff like yeah. that right it'll it'll pop up people will try it for a while uh Maybe there's a little bit of a honeymoon syndrome for a while. People will embrace it. Some yeah. stuff stays. I mean, you remember the cushion plunger was actually in this category originally. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. They you weren't know, sure about it, huh? They weren't sure about it. You know? I'll tell you what I think contributes a lot to the honeymoon phase is you're putting something on. You're going out and actively trying to solve a problem that you perceive you have. So your focus is on solving that problem. 100%. Then you put a bunch of time or arrows behind it and magically you solve the problem. It's like, uh, you know, Dave Cousins, someone was trying to shoot 23s at a world field event. You know, they wanted to shoot 23s on the bunnies and an X10 or similar on the rest of the targets. The bunnies being the short ones where it's advantageous to have a big arrow. There's not a wind effect generally, yada, yada, yada. And, they were trying to do this and and get them to where horizontal point of impact would be the same. So left and right, the X10 and the 23 would would hit the same, and then they would just have to adjust for a sight tape. And they, you know, Dave said, you know what? I spent so much time trying to get that to work one year. I shot, he's like, I shot every different spine 23, different point weights, fletch left, fletch right, different fletching. He's like, I probably shot 2,000 arrows trying to make this 23 work. And what I ended up doing was just shooting a 2000 arrows at bunny targets and got That's really good at aiming at bunny targets and went to world field and shot my X tens, you know? So that's, that's kind of what I think happens with those honeymoon phases is you just, you go, Oh, that really worked. Cause you spent time grinding on the problem you were trying to solve. Sarah asks a, a good question and, and there's a element to what you just brought up that I think fits into part of this. She says her 15-year-old son is wondering, can several short practice sessions in a day of 15 to 20 minutes each work just as well as an hour-long practice session? I'll, I'll quickly mention what I think. I think the answer is yes. I think that if we're looking at archery as working on our skills and not necessarily weightlifting, that uh, sessions, dedicated sessions of 20 minutes each over time, let's say that we have three of those, 
So mm -hmm. it adds up to be an hour. Would probably work better for some personalities than yeah. trying to sit there for an hour and losing focus 40 minutes in. Correct. It's probably a better way to practice certain things. Yes. I also think it's a good way to prepare for, say, match play shooting. Yes. Where you're going to shoot for about 30 minutes in a match. And then you're going to have a long time. You're going to have a little break. Then you're going to have to get back into it and shoot for 30 minutes again. Um, I, I'm a big believer in trying to match the pace of a tournament when you're right up at tournament prep, like the week up. So this is something like for... Uh, Linda prepping her for world cup final one year, you know, we went and we're putting a, a big focus on not just shooting arrows, but like shooting arrows under a clock, mm -hmm. knowing who our opponents were going to be. And then watching their watching YouTube matches of them from prior, knowing how fast they would shoot. So, you know, putting the clock on Linda shoots, then we would alternate the clock to the other shooter and go about seven, eight seconds. Some of these girls shot pretty fast, right? And Linda needed to be quick in shooting her arrow, loading the next arrow, turning around, being ready to go again. So we got her ready for that. So that was, that kind of matches up with the, you know, 15, 20 minute practice session in that you're, you're spending time focusing on, you're practicing for a real world event, like a match play. Um, so yeah, I do think it would work. I also think, you know, going out and spending an hour just grinding can help, but different times of year, different strategies for your training. There there is times like you said you need to be weightlifting, building strength. That's probably more early in the year. And as you've got that, you've got a bunch of arrows behind you in the season, you can fine tune your practice quite a bit and and worry less about building the strength and more about refining technique and skill. I like it. That that is a very good. Uh... So far, this podcast doesn't suck. We're actually, uh, I think, you know. Do you think we're being more professional because we've got actual? I gear? think it's the microphone has totally changed us. You know, the, the... and we can't see outside, so oh, yeah. we can't we lose. Can't be distracted. Yeah, but maybe we should podcast for fifteen to twenty minutes at a time. Pause, then come back. That could be an unexpectedly brilliant suggestion. Or we would get bored of having to come back to it. I think we're more grinders. Like, well, let's just grind through that. That could sound bad, but I think we're more about grinding through the podcast. Let's say that. Yeah. Like, the, like golf, like the golf term. Yeah. Like let's get through this and, um, keep the momentum while we got like right now, I think we got good momentum. We don't want to pause. If we have to pause, we could lose our momentum. We come back and we just sound terrible, uninterested, whatever, which you know, let's face it, that happens from time to time. Yeah. Right now, though, this time of year, there's no one out doing landscaping. So there's if nothing, we could, no, yeah, if we no, could see outside, we wouldn't be distracted. Yeah. As we speak, we're in we're in Steve's office, and Steve's office has a nice window, but it doesn't lead. To <laughs> it just looks at a whiteboard outside. The yeah, I'm in like we have our own suite here at yeah. Hoyt in marketing, and yeah, my we have a little meeting room out in the middle of it. And my office just looks into the meeting room. So. I will say that if it's going to be called a suite, it needs to have an espresso machine, which it decidedly does not or cereal cereal. Yeah. We have no, it's a, not a suite. This is just an office within an office. Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds good to call it a suite. It's yeah. the marketing suite, the marketing suite. How come we're the only ones too, that they call it a suite? Like they don't call it that for purchasing. They don't call it the purchasing suite. Yeah, they don't call it the engineering suite. Maybe it goes back to some of the Mad Men kind of thing. You know, marketing guys all getting together. Maybe they're smoking cigars and drinking martinis. We I don't, don't do that either. No, definitely not. Not even close. Dang. Heck, you don't even have a bottle of water around here. Right. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> An empty one right there. I'm good. <laughs> it's empty. Look at that. Yeah. All right. Hey, let's keep going. Daniel is asking, does the point shank length on small diameter target arrows affect the spine of the arrow significantly so that if you're on the line between two spines on the spine chart, should you go down to a weaker spine to make up for an effectively shorter arrow due to shank length? It, uh, there's it, a paper in, answer and there's yeah. a practical answer. In theory, yes. In, in reality, not enough to yeah. matter. When I, I shot a yeah, practice 718 or 716 with uh, X10 arrows, half of them with tungsten, half of them with stainless. Could not 
pattern uh, impact difference so at for all. For those of you wondering what we're talking about, tungsten is 2.2 times denser than stainless. Therefore, it has a shorter shank inside the arrow, which in theory should make the arrow act a little weaker because mechanically it's going to be a little more um, flexible. But the reality is, Daniel, I don't think it makes enough difference to it's honestly because make a difference. most of the flex of the arrow is coming all the way in the center. Yeah. So it's not a huge difference, but in theory, yes. Actually, with the X10 in particular, with finger release in particular, that rear shock absorber function is going to absorb the difference that you'd see on the front end of the arrow. So, so the rear taper for a recurve shooter will have a bigger difference than anything you could do with point shank length. That's yeah, exactly right. So Daniel, yep. good question. Uh, legitimate one. Yeah. On paper, yes. In reality, not so much. Yeah, I had, I had another guy, a distinguished shooter, who was like really arguing with me that tungsten would shoot differently than stainless. And I'm like, dude, I, I mean, maybe, you know, 15 years ago when you were relevant, but I'm not seeing it today. So that's what I told the guy. Well, and you know, I mean, to a reasonable extent, there's, uh, there's been an evolution, um, I think, of thinking about these things. One of the things that a lot of top shooters are realizing is just how much advantage they are really getting from that uh, rear section of that X10 yeah. And maximizing that in the case of some folks by using those biter out knocks that weaken it even more. Sure. Right. And as a result, um, yeah, it, it kind of masks any of the stuff going on up front to a degree as a practical matter. Yeah. We could sit there and we could theorize and we could come up with numbers, but the reality is I don't think it matters that much. Yeah. I mean, if something, if one of the two gives you more confidence then do that, Jimmy Lutz wants to know, as a new father, when are we going to see Easton baby onesies? Yeah, congrats to Jimmy. Yes. And, and Danelle. Danelle. Yep. Yeah, she's the one that did the most work, you know. Definitely. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Yes. All right. Bob is asking, um, or stating, he shoots without his glasses. He normally wears glasses to see better. Well, that's what most of us do. <laughs> unless we want to look better. I only wear them to look cool. Yes, right. And can see good outdoors, but indoors I have trouble seeing my circle. I use a circle instead of a dot on my lens indoors. Will larger peep gather more light and allow me to see better indoors? I'm going to ask this question. Should Bob even be worried about what he's seeing on the circle, or should he be looking at the target and let the circle show up as a secondary thing? Well, sounds like the circle is almost... What can happen with these guys is the circle becomes almost impossible to see. My guess is Bob is using a clarifier. If that's the case go down and clarifier power or remove it. And then you'll get target blur. Yes. There's really not like a, you, you're never going to have a situation where you have, you know, a five X or more powerful lens that will give you a crystal clear target picture. And you can see your pin dot ring, whatever you're using for a side aperture with a compound just doesn't work. So you know, the technology is not there yet. So you, well, you've got to compromise somewhere. Um, I will give up a little bit of target clarity to make sure I can see the dot. He might need to use a bit more of a bolder ring. So increase the ring thickness, um, probably going external so that he keeps the internal picture the same. There's some other options to go with. You know, if you really want to use a circle, and and you really like you just feel like you've got to have a clear target and that would be to eliminate the ring and go to like a frosted lens like jesse used to use where you'd actually have the outside of the lens would be purposely blurry like looking through a frosted window mm -hmm. and then the center would be clear so you can kind of use that to line up but my guess is uh, Bob's issue stems more from his clarifier. Clarifiers are cool. They should never be used outdoors and indoors. You want to use as weak of a clarifier as possible. Like a uh, specialty makes one that's a half power. Now I think that's what I use this year. Half or a one too many people use a two cause they really think they need to see the target clearly. And you don't need to see the target clearly. You just need to see the target, uh, in its correct shape and then aim at the middle of the yellow. I totally agree with everything you had to say. Got nothing to add. Cool. Tyler is asking a question that's seconded by Jacob and Dean. And I, I don't know if there's anybody better to discuss this than you and I. 
There is not, it's actually. A, Tyler is looking for an in-depth discussion on the differences between the Pro Comp and the X10 Parallel Pro. Let's, let's talk about this for a moment. Pro Comp is, for want of a better term, a parallel X10, uh, a parallel ACE. That's, that's how I would describe it. Yeah, it's an ACE without a rear or front, front grind. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, so, and there was some, I saw some other confusion online where someone was saying something about Pro Field. Yes. A Pro Field was an ACE with a front taper. Yes. Like a Pro Tour had. Yes. So Pro Comp is just, it's the exact same thing, but only with a, ta- a, par- a parallel grind. Correct. Now, yep. Pro Comp was built to be a alternative arrow for people who wanted a four millimeter design who wanted high performance from the standpoint of speed and who wanted an affordable price. However, and I'll just be, be frank, um, the pricing worked out higher than was expected. And that partly was because of, um, some internal <laughs> paperwork that, perhaps wasn't um, correctly executed, shall we say? Yeah. When you're doing pricing, there's a lot of things that come into play. There's so many with variables. The cost accounting. Yeah. When you're looking at the labor burden as it gets applied, yeah. the raw material costs. Raw material costs is the easy part. Yes. Where cost accounting often screws up is in applying labor burden. And then they'll do it. And keep in mind, you've got to do it for every different part number, which means every different spine. Yes. So that's heaven, how that heaven works. Heaven forfend that I should say anything about cost accounting at, at Easton because they're very good at what they do. Yeah, um, I don't think it was their problem in this situation, right? If someone read it wrong? Yeah. Anyway, long story short, the price of the Pro Comp was higher than what it was intended to be from the engineering design because of the the costs, the burden, the material cost, et cetera, et cetera. Now, uh, that's a frank discussion of, of what was going on with ProComp. X10 Parallel Pro is a different product on several levels. First off, there's actually more work put into the X10 Parallel Pro than was done with the ProComp on several different levels. One of them being the, spe- the specifications for the product. ProComp was not weight-coated. ProComp did not have a five-point straightness check, and there were a number of other differences. Fundamentally, the X10 Parallel Pro has that five-point straightness check, which goes way beyond the industry standard. It has weight coating, which is in line with the X10, the ACE, and the X10 Pro Tour. It has tighter tolerances for the, what we call, um, I don't know if I can use this term because it might be internal and secret. Let's just say the, the alignment of the rear of the arrow is extremely accurate on the parallel, on the parallel pro. All of those factors together make the parallel pro a product that should actually cost more than the pro comp, but the numbers have been reworked and that's why it comes in at a lower price point. Interesting. So that's probably a little too much inside baseball. Yeah. There's a, I know when I was leaving too, we had some new machines coming online that were able to produce core tubes uh, better and with lower scrap rates too, which was going to help with a, a product like this. So that a new German draw bench was pretty sweet. Yeah. I was is. impressed by that. I don't know if they're, I don't know if that is factoring in. I assume it is. It but is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's actually an Eastern design, but it was built in Germany, and it's it's a slick piece of equipment. It's really cool. Yeah. All right. So hopefully that, that helps set things straight. Uh, you know, fundamentally, they are different products because their specifications are different. It's a much tighter tolerance on everything with the X10 Parallel Pro. Yeah, if um, you're on the outside looking in and you're going, oh, this is a Pro Comp and this is a X10 Parallel Pro, they're the same thing. It's like, well, um, from a diameter and weight Yes. Quality of the Parallel Pro, higher. Cost, lower. So be happy about that. Yeah. that's that, This might be the only product that I've seen in the industry in a while. That improved that and got, got cheaper? That got better, but also got less expensive yep. to, to acquire. Uh, note that I didn't say less expensive to make. Just less expensive <laughs> to acquire. All right. So uh, there you have that. 
Um, question for you, Steve. With Reading right around the corner, as a former Reading, this is from Daryl. With Reading right around the corner, as a former Reading champion, what was your Reading prep and practice like, and what distances did you focus on? And you are getting ready for Reading, are you not? No, but I will maybe. Okay. At some point, and I'll do what I've always done. Um, and that's a really good question. So at Reading, we know the dot sizes that we're going to be shooting at. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Reading, it's a some people call it a 3D tournament. It is not. It's shot at 3D animals, but there are dots on them that correspond to... You know how far it is. Yeah, you know how far it is, and you correspond them to NFA field archery dot sizes. So I practice it like I would field archery. And um, what I like to do is, you know, you can usually buy the dots from a number of makers. I actually have a... Or you can make them yourself. Yeah. I have a really cool target that was made by um, 365 Targets. and I remember when you got that, right? Yeah. It's got like five of them on there. And- it's got five cores. Yeah. So it's a giant like 48-inch block, and then it's got five cores. And what I do is I put that out, and I have the cores. The guy painted, he made them orange. So it's an orange foam, and then he painted them black except the dots, right? right? So he templated the the dots out. So I have each reading size dot on a core. So I have all five sizes, you know, one exposed or one, you know, one is a small, the next, 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 yada, yada, till you get to the hundred yarder. So I have that target that's got every reading dot size right there for me to shoot. And then, and because just, of the orange foam, you don't have to repaint it. Don't have to repaint it. Yeah. You, I mean, if you needed to, it'd be, you'd be repainting outside the, the dot, which is yeah. really easy. So, I will go and take the dot that's, you know, they call it three to 19 yards. And I'll usually practice on that around 25, if not out to 30. Then when we're playing games with buddies in the backyard, I might say, all right, you know, first to hit the dot, it will shoot at that dot from 50 yards, try to hit that. So it's, it's an over distance training. Basically the 19 yard max dot, I shoot far beyond the max 25 to 30 yards. The dot that's shot up to 54 yards, I'll shoot that one out to 65, 70 yards. And then, you know, when I get there and I'm actually aiming at the dot that at its intended size and range, it just seems a little easier to aim within. So that's kind of how I've always trained Redding. I think it works. I always used to show up with a very well-prepared bow that was good to go up and down hills and, um, usually would change my stabilizer setup a little bit for Redding, but it's not a real, it's not a lot of steep stuff. And the stuff that is steep is generally pretty easy. Um, so I didn't have to worry about like aiming up and down a hill with a big stabilizer on the side and creating a torque issue. I could just, you know, torque it back and shoot it. But, you know, understanding the course, understanding what, um, what your challenges are with your shot style, what will affect you. Like some people are really bothered by uphill shots, go shoot a bunch of uphill shots. Some people will, will do stuff like, Oh, I'm going to shorten my draw length for that uphill in Redding. And like the uphill section in the Canyon is one of the easier sections. Truthfully. Um, I probably went like five years and didn't miss two points there. So, you know, that's one of the easier sections. I'm not changing what I do for the rest of the course to accommodate one of the easier parts of the course. Um, one of the biggest uh, mistakes I see people make is they'll, they'll really spend a lot of time at a hundred yards. There's two points to be had there. I, I look at it as two points. You're either going to shoot a 10 or an 11, right? So it's a two point difference shooting two arrows per target. You know, I watched one guy, prominent senior pro archer from another arrow company. <laughs> spend like five days at the practice range shooting a hundred yards, step up to it and shoot in the wind, miss it, (laughs) lose his cookies and, and then forget that the rest of the course is where you really win the tournament. I bet I know who you're talking about. Yeah. So he's a good dude. He is a good dude, but, um, another tall fella. Yeah. Don't, don't spend your time at a hundred yards. Make sure you can get it right. If you don't, if you don't have the ability and then back to the sight radius question we were asked earlier, um, you know, for shooters, like for, for Linda, 
a lot of my wife, Linda, a lot of the people who can't get a hundred yards will move their side in so that they can, the closer your side is, the more range you can get on your sight tape. Um, just how that works. But so they'll move it in for the hundred yard shot and then move it back out and they'll go, Oh, I got to move it in and then give it 30 clicks to the left. And then that's how I make it work with Linda. We just move her side in and she shoots the whole tournament like that. And it works better. You don't have to fudge anything. You're not trying to make something work for 10 minutes and then go back to the rest of the range shooting it that way. You know, there's just too many risks there. And she's done well at Reading. She's won it. She has podiumed a few times more. So I think we've got a pretty good understanding of how to go and attack the tournament, uh, assuming I care and have been putting any sort of training in. I feel I'll always be competitive. Yeah. Well, as Marcus Anir puts it, you're the uh, <clears throat> the Allen Iverson of archery. Yeah, I've been that guy too long. I think the practice, <laughs> the, the lack of practice has really caught up. Like I can still, uh, any given day I can be competitive, but there's, I'm not going to have it for a full tournament or, you know, even a full day all the time anymore. Fair enough. I have to put in a lot of training. It, I could get it back. I do believe that. I do believe I could be as competitive as I ever was. But uh, I'm just not sure that's where my life is focused on anymore. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, you know, people's priorities change, and yours may someday change back. There's no telling. Uh, and, and one of the beautiful things about our sport is that you can be competitive in many different phases of your life. If you choose to be competitive again, you can. Um, Probably. You know, from a physical and mental standpoint, you're only getting better mentally. Um you know, as long as your physical holds up, it's uh, it's one of those things that you can do at whatever level you choose to. It's just a matter of putting in the time. Sure. Okay, we have a question here from Andre. Andre wants to know if arrows can wear out through normal usage, both aluminum and carbon, not from being shot into abrasive targets, but foam or bag targets. Should they be changed out after so long? And then the second part of his question. When it comes to storage, can higher low temperatures affect carbon or aluminum arrows, say above 10 degrees and below 90 degrees? So I'm, I imagine he's talking Fahrenheit here. Yep. Um, he's from Texas. So. Okay. So, Andre, the, the answer is not so much. Um, you're not going to wear arrows out through normal usage as long as you're not shooting into Stramit or Edgerton or, you know, rocks. Sheep's wool. Yeah. Yeah. Like they use in uh, NSW. Uh, no, you're looking at, um, for practical purposes, Arrows will hold up just fine being shot into bag targets. If they whack each other, of course, that can affect things. Uh, aluminum arrows, they'll hold up basically forever, um, as long as you're shooting them at their correct spine, at out of, you know, out of a correct setup, um, and pulling them, you know, reasonably with reasonable care, you know, not not yanking on them sideways when you pull them out of the target. Um, you cannot shoot quote the spine out of an arrow end quote. <laughs> um, that that's. The spine of the arrow is decided exclusively by the by the geometry of the arrow and the material modulus of the elasticity of the material. So, no, you do not magically change the spine of an arrow as long as the dimensions stay the same. So, what if I were to flex test an arrow a million times? You mean like the wing of an aircraft? Sure. If I were to like spine check it, hang. Won't change. Yeah. So if I did that a million times. Now, won't change as long as you don't bend it right. or make it oval. Right. So as long as you don't damage the arrow. As long as you stay within the yield strength of the material. Right. Yeah. I've always wondered that. Like if I took a carbon arrow and I spine checked it a million times. Like we, here at Hoyt, we cycle a bow 250,000 times, you yeah. know, just to see what happens. Yeah. And yeah, I know at Easton we have different testing standards. Um, so on a carbon, I, yeah, on it's a just carbon interesting arrow, to think about on a carbon arrow. Again, if you're staying within the design parameters of that product, right. You're not trying to make the ends meet when you bend it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a carbon arrow will hold up essentially forever let's, as well. Yeah. Let's say you sagged it. Three times more than a spine check would. Should still be okay. You I mean, I guess that's not far. even a lot, right? Because 
if you were to spine test them, you would say, all right, this arrow deflects 380 thousandths of an inch. Yeah. So you'd only be deflecting it, you know, 1.2 inches. Yeah. Yeah. You can get away with that all day long. If you were to do a pretty significant bend, not bend, but flex any a, a million arrow, times. Any carbon arrow that's excessively flexed can start losing, because of compression, mm-hmm. can start losing the cohesivity between the fibers and the resin system or you can actually break fibers. But again, you're pushing that beyond its limits and the arrows are designed to be shot within certain limits. Anybody's arrows, not just Easton's. Mm -hmm. So the answer to your question is, um, can you wear them out through normal usage? Not so much. Now, if normal usage involves whacking one arrow into another, obviously, Andre, you know what's going to happen there. When it comes to storage, can higher low temperatures affect carbon or aluminum arrows? Say above 10 degrees and below 90 degrees. No, no effect at those ranges. You could probably get away with, with an aluminum arrow, you can probably get away with 100 and 120 degrees with no problem at all over a long term uh, or, or more, you know. Um, would I suggest leaving carbon arrows in super high elevated temperatures with something leaning on them or something pressing on them? I wouldn't do that, no. Nobody's carbon arrow is meant for that kind of, You'd heat up the epoxy resin. And, That's right. It and could then, creep over time. Yeah, get a creep but there. But within reason, I mean, you know, same same conditions apply. Yeah. it's. Um, I, I do hear shooters. I had some people talking about a certain brand of arrows that were, they felt, oh, these shoot really good to begin, but then they, the group seemed to open up. They would change components and that wouldn't help the situation. Do you think that's a situation where maybe uh, they were possibly like bell ending the component side or what their perception was, was, oh, I broke down the spine. That's what they would say. What I can speak for is what Easton does. And that is um, when Easton engineers a carbon arrow, it is engineered with an envelope that goes far beyond what it will see in the real world, mostly for safety. Right. Mostly to ensure that in any conceivable practical use, that there won't be a safety compromise. Those same considerations for safety also give them extraordinary resilience in the extremes. I can't say that that's the truth for, you know, some of this product that you're seeing coming from China, you know, quite frankly, with no testing standards and goodness knows what, you know, parameters are yeah. being incorporated do, do into the Do they know design. what a column load is? Well, exactly. <laughs> so I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to throw shade on stuff, except I am, because I know what Easton does. And I know that some of these companies out there that are creating, you know, uh, commodity level carbon tubes and selling them as arrows uh-huh. are not applying those same engineering and safety standards. And right. so, you know, I'm not going to get on my high horse about this, except to say that, uh, uh, you know, you need to be able to trust who's building your arrows when you consider what can happen if one breaks. I'll leave it at that. Yes. All right. Um, why can't we get the old FMJ and Realtree camo anymore? You went to the lost camo of Matthews, but have even stopped <laughs> that. Why are we stuck with black diamond plate FMJ? Well, Jeffrey, when this becomes the Easton Hunting Podcast, you can ask that question. I have no idea. I, I don't. Maybe know I should either. edit this part out. Eh, it's up to you. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why they like the FMJ in that diamond plate. People like it. I've, I've always wondered why they did camo arrows to make them harder to find. I'll tell you. If I were Jim Easton, I would have thought that camo arrows were the most brilliant thing ever. Every time they miss. Every time you miss, you got to go buy a new yeah. arrow. <laughs> Okay, time to time to get back on the on the on the train track here. Yeah, what else do we have? Uh, I think that's got, it. Is there any more queries? I, I think that covered it. I think it did. Oh, you know what though? I think there's one on my personal page. Let me uh, let me pull that up. We may edit or we may not. We may just leave it the way it is. Sometimes people like the show, you know, like how you know how people go and they buy um, unpasteurized milk. You ever heard of that? No. Yeah, apparently there's this there's this rage for I guess it's like Austin, Texas. People like to buy raw milk, 
which doesn't sound very wise to me. Nevertheless, people seem to do it. And as a result, um, you know, you got, you got these diseases going around. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It can't be a good thing. All right, here we go. Uh, oh, you know what? It, it appears to be some of the same questions we got here. Let me pull that back up so I can see it. All right. What do you say we wrap up our question and answer session here? You got any more that you want to address? Uh, there, well, there was, there is actually two. Oh, yeah? There is one that's, uh, Marty Judnich asks advantages of dis and disadvantages of unibushings versus super unibushing. So like a, a G knock versus an S or super knock in 27 arrows for indoor size 27. So mm. I've always believed the bigger the arrow, the bigger the knock needs to be. But I don't know that it truly matters for compound. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I don't think I don't it matters know. a ton. Uh, obviously for fingers, it can matter depending on a couple of things you know, a really big knock, you're going to have your fingers a little further apart. It could create some issues with uh, finger pressure on the knock. I, I, I don't know if I'd worry about it too much, but uh, if you're going from outdoor to indoor, it could matter a little bit in terms of getting used to one or the other. Cause you know, obviously you're, you're set up on the string and your string pressure on that top finger and your bottom finger will be affected by that angle, which would be affected by how far you have your fingers from each other, which is affected by how big that sure. knock is. Yeah. And for a, 27 arrow indoor uh, out of a compound the the consensus seems to be just through observation everyone uses you know a, a six and a half mil s size knock there's not a whole lot of people using a g or a smaller knock or a pin yeah. with a 27 i think because they're heavy right you want a little bit more plastic just to maintain some beef that super knock super popular isn't it yeah it is um yeah my my dream was always that my pin knock, a four mil knock, and a six and a half knock would all have the same throat, ears, you know, in, uh, string interaction from one to the next. But I haven't gotten that yet. So well, you know, we just did a, <laughs> a video technical bulletin series about that very subject um, with our guest uh, Chris Schaff. Oh, okay. And, and Chris had a few words to say about that in that video technical series. Let's listen to what he has to say. Chris, Vegas this year, holy crap, what a, what a shoot down. It was very impressive. You know, with 27 of them and the caliber of the shooters that there were and having, you know, Matthias actually winning it out, but him, you know, and Neem's never missing one. Right. Um, Stefan Hansen, who has been on a terror this year. Right. You know, you always have Kyle in the mix. And, you know, Jimmy Lutz this year winning World Cup Finals, doing very well at the Indoor World Series. It was anybody's game out there, yeah. and I knew it was going to take a while, but I never thought 15 ends. No, but you know we've actually seen even more than that in the in the history of Vegas, but not like that. Not, not with everybody shooting perfect. Yeah, not with 27 of them either. Right. You know, so there was more this year, but yeah, and I think they shot 45 without missing a baby. Yep. Baby hex, which I'm glad I wasn't there this year. It is pretty <laughs> impressive, though. You know, if you consider uh, the evolution of the indoor game. And you consider the supreme nerve control that Matthias had to have had to have pulled that off. Um, not to take anything away from, you know, from the other two guys that were out there. I think that you know, we are seeing a new era of precision on the part of, of these guys. And to your point earlier, Matthias shot perfectly in Neem and still lost still because lost. of the nature of the WA round. Yep. Yeah, he. So let me ask you this as a pro. Which do you prefer? Do you like the way they do it at WA or do you like the way that they do it at Vegas? I think I like Vegas better. You know, it gives more of a show, I guess, compared to World Archery. And I'm not taking anything away from that because, like in Neems, their, their finals is, you know, top notch. Well, they do have dancing girls after they all. They do. But, um, you know, you have everybody who shoots clean in Vegas, if it's five or if it's, you know, 20, they're all shooting for you know, the top prize. Right. Whereas in world archery, they shoot head to head matches, you lose, you're out. So at the end, there's only two people shooting against each other. So I think having, you know, you know, one of those two guys is going to win in Vegas. When you have the whole spread there, it's anybody's game. Yeah, literally. Right. I mean, anybody who's standing there, including the lucky dog yep. is absolutely capable of winning that this year, $58,000 check. And it's not just $58,000 because yeah. When you count contingency, that's a $100,000 day for some of these folks. It is. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. And that's another factor. 
You know, one of the things that uh, has really grown over the years is that potential at that one event to basically make your year as a pro. Um, and that's got to add some pressure. Oh, for sure. I mean, for compound archery, Vegas is the Olympics for us. Sure. Um, we don't get the opportunity to shoot in the, you know, the standard Olympics. But, you know, that is our top tournament of the year. Chris, as you're getting ready for outdoor season now, as our focus shifts from, you know, things like Vegas uh, to the outdoor, uh, what is your plan for this upcoming 2024 season? Well, with the weather in Montana, I should be able to get out and shoot uh, outdoors a little bit earlier. Um, so, realistically, I'm going to keep the same bow setup, draw length, poundage-wise, as I do indoors, because I shoot a lot of 50-meter stuff. So it's same, it's flat ground. It's not, you know, up and down hills. So I'm going to keep the same draw length there. Um, I am going to switch up to the X10 Parallel Pro or the X10, depending on you know my speed and what happens. You know, wind drift kind of deal. You know, because World Cups and the USAT events are usually pretty windy. So I want to make sure that I have the great, the best combination that I can have between speed, arrow diameter, and how they group. So speaking frankly, we, you're, you're in an experimental mode right now because what you're trying to do is determine that little bit of a horse race between the ballistic density and efficiency of the um, Pro Tour mm -hmm. versus the extra speed of the new X10 Parallel Pro. And the choice is going to come down to maybe venue and conditions as well as what your grouping shows you, I suppose. Yeah, it's you know mainly on grouping because you know with the wind it's some days it's manageable other days when it's really choppy you know it's it's hard to aim anyways so having the thing that's the most forgiving and best grouping i think is the most important and so for your purposes how are you going to go ahead and evaluate that are you planning to set up two bows and have two different setups or what's your method for for trying to figure that out uh, so right now with you know the new technology and everything like that i have i'm gonna shoot the same bow um, i have a rest that i can swap bodies on so I can have a rest for the Parallel Pros, and I can have a rest for the you know, standard X-10s. What, what rest are you using? Uh, Spot Hog Swap okay. is what I'm using. Um, so it's actually designed for that purpose? It is designed. You know, it's designed for, I can go 27s, X-10s, just swap the rest, same bow, same you know, knock fit and everything like that, so I don't have to worry about changing any of that in the process. Um, so that's what I'm going to try. I'm going to put a rest for the X-10 Parallel Pro rest for the X-10s, and I'm going to determine which one's grouping better. And if they're both shooting well, then possibly I take both sets with me to a World Cup USAT and look at the wind. I like that method because you're basically changing one variable mm -hmm. in your setup. Yep. It's really hard to chase multiple variables and, and definitively say it's because of this that I get that. But if you're only changing one variable, it's going to be faster, easier, and clearer for you to get those results, I think. Yes, for sure. So, um, what's your first event of the year outdoors? Um, first one is Arizona Cup. Right, and that's uh, frequently windy. windy. Usually pretty windy. You notice the, at that venue, Arizona Cup, generally the wind comes from where the sun is, angle-wise, right? So if the sun rises in the east, you get an east wind, and it is one of those places where you don't have much shelter. You don't have a lot of forgiveness. Sometimes you get dust devils in that venue at Ben Avery Park, and um, that is a tough test. So you'll have it settled by then, you think? I, I'm hoping so, yes. Another windy venue is the one in SoCal. Frequently, it's windy there as well. Yeah, usually SoCal, you know, in the mornings, you know, because it is in June, so you kind of get that June gloom coming off of the ocean. But as soon as the sun burns that off, it usually turns pretty windy in the afternoon. So depending on, you know, I guess what our schedule is down there this year, sometimes we shoot in the morning where it's not terrible. Other times we shoot in the afternoon and it's... It's pretty windy. Uh, usually the finals are always windy down there. One of the great things about, you know, when I was a resident athlete there was if you wanted to test in different wind conditions, just wait. It'll change. Yeah. So it was definitely one of those venues where you would see the full gamut from dead calm to a roaring gale in the course of a day. And, you know, typically that's what you see, particularly in June, as Chris alludes to. Uh, nationals this year are going to be in a fairly warm location. Yeah, Lubbock, Texas this year. Um, it's going to be a new venue. Yeah. I'm excited to go down there. But uh, another place that could be really windy. I don't have any idea what it's going to be like. It's, I know it's going to be hot. You know, I've been in Texas in July, and it's brutal hot. Um, but, you know, looking at it, I don't think there's going to be a lot of cover at Lubbock either. No. So 
outdoor soccer fields. Hot, <laughs> windy, but I mean, everybody's got to shoot on the same playing field. So. Now, uh, internationally, of course, it's going to be the usual suspects this year. We've got uh, Shanghai starting off. Sometimes you get that big swirling wind in the stadium in Shanghai. Yeah, depending on, you know, kind of what side you're on. If you're on one of the ends, you're going to get, you know, quite a bit of wind in the same direction. If you're in the middle of the field, you know, I think because the doors are open on the ends, it swirls around more towards you, and you get a lot of frequency there. Um, but it does cut down some of the wind if you were shooting outside of the dome. You don't get to pick because the draw is what determines where you are on the field. But if you had your preferences, which side of that thing would you rather be on? Um, probably on the left side where the wind's blowing left to right, just because that's what I practice at home. I always win left to right. So, okay. Well, good luck on the draw. <laughs> Thank you. And then, of course, you've got Turkey. And Turkey is notoriously a windy place, Turkey, excuse me, for the World Cup. Yeah, last year we got super lucky. Um, our whole 72 arrow qualifying, there was zero wind. And you saw some of the highest scores out there. I mean, U.S. set a new world record there. Um, with the three, Jimmy Lutz, uh, Sawyer Sullivan, and Braden shot a world record there qualifying. Um, we've seen Matthias Fullerton go all the way to the end for a new world record and just barely missed it out, but usually it's windy. Yeah, Turkey is um, notoriously windy to the point where we've actually seen teams wearing backpacks full of water bottles to try to keep them more stable. It's a situation that generally is very consistent, so very unusual for it to have not been too windy last year. Don't count on it this year. No, I'm ready for the wind. Mexico is going to be the home of the World Cup final once again this year. They put on a great show down there. What do you think about that? Are you hoping to make the big, the big scene? Uh, that's, I mean, that's the all-time goal is to make the World Cup finals. Um, haven't made it in a couple years, so hoping to get down to Mexico this year and see what I can do. Well, Chris Schaff, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to always see you here at Easton. Uh, it's always great to have you here, sharing your knowledge with all of our viewers, and uh, uh, you know, just best of luck for you for the season ahead. Thank you, I appreciate it. So there's Chris's point of view on that. There we go. Yeah, that was uh, that was kind of interesting. Uh, pretty much paralleled what you had to say as well. Okay. And then our our final question comes from Jacob. Says, George, will you be commentating at World Field in Canada? And if so, will you bring your own binoculars? I will not be commentating at World Field in Canada as far as I'm aware. I think I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't know how you even could. Right. 